So we're clearly very riled up about this. And there's a, lot to, there's a lot to get riled up about. Okay. Hey everyone, welcome back to Do What You Can For The People, the show that nobody asked for. I'm here today with my good friend and fellow Bardian, Sahara James. Sahara is a total badass for lots of reasons. Uh, she is enrolled part-time in Bard's MBA in Sustainability, the program that I just graduated from, and her background is in industrial hygiene and project management. I've invited Sahara onto the show tonight to talk about sustainability, blackness, racism, climate justice, social justice, and mental health. And if that sounds like a lot, it's because it is. A lot. So. Hey, Sahara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Um, I would just like to start by saying that I'm so proud of you for starting this platform and you are doing the work and it's so admirable to watch and I am beyond honored to just like have time to have this conversation with you. So. Thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, Nicole gave me just a bit of an introduction. I am also a Bard MBA student part-time. Uh, there's, this is like a fantastic program that we met in. She's actually my amiga, kind of like a mentor, uh, who's kind of a, a class ahead of me. So that's how we met. Uh, my background is in industrial hygiene and project management. Like she said, I was working for a private environmental engineering consulting firm specifically working during uh, doing lead inspections in public housing in New York City schools. Uh, so I definitely uh, have some experience just seeing what goes on in that area. And um, going further back, I did my undergrad degree at Hunter College, and um, I'm just here kind of navigating the spaces that I want to get into. And I'm excited to have this conversation because it pretty, it's pretty much going to touch on almost everything <laughs> that I'm interested in, like on an academic level. So I'm really excited to like jump into this pool. It's going to get messy. I love it. Love yeah. It. Let's get, let's get dirty in this yes. pool. <laughs> yes. um, I was, I just want to also preface the rest of the episode by saying that like, so yes, Sahara is my little essentially in the program. And when I put a call out to our extended community, Sahara jumped and was like, I need to be on your show. And we started brainstorming and every topic that I just listed was something that came across as something that we'd be interested in talking about. And at first we were like, ooh, is that too much? Like, are they all over the place and scattered? But really thinking about what sustainability means for us, we realized that all of these topics actually fit quite neatly under that umbrella. And so I thought we could talk first about what sustainability means for us and what we think it should mean for the common man. And I'll let you kick things off with your definition. Sure, sure. Um, I think it's so important to have an actual conversation about what sustainability means, um, specifically because I think that right now it seems, I would say from a very mainstream perspective, sustainability seems to be um, very much centered on the environment and preserving and conserving the environment. And yes, that is a pillar of sustainability, absolutely. But another pillar of sustainability is people. Um, so personally, when I define sustainability, I think of an equitable, safe, and just society for current and future generations. And when I say current and future, I mean everyone, uh, all people, completely inclusive. 
And we're also making sure that we're utilizing natural resources in a way that we can continue to use those natural resources. Um, and it's really just about sustaining our society. And it's funny because sustainability, if you really think about it, is centered around sustaining people. It's not really about, it's, and it's just knowing that in order to sustain people, we have to sustain the environment as right. well and sustain our economy. Um, but what I think what is so radical about sustainability is the fact that it is centered on the well-being of all people for a long period of time. We're thinking on a long scale, uh, a, a long time frame here, uh, and we're thinking about that from all from all aspects. So that's that's how I have defined sustainability after a year of yeah. an elite MBA program. Yeah, and I'll jump in here. So when I started the program. Um, my definition of sustainability was very much meeting our current needs uh, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And even just in the last couple weeks and months of graduating and watching this, the social movement that has erupted um, in the time of quarantine, my definition has actually shifted a little bit because you're 100% right that sustainability isn't just about preserving the planet and the environmental aspects. We need to make sure we're taking care of our people and Actually, in my interview for BARD, they asked me what to define like sustainability, and the three things I said were related to environmental issues, social issues, and economic issues, because businesses need to learn how to sustain themselves for long periods of time. But my current definition of sustainability is meeting our current needs without compromising the ability of others currently and in the future to meet their needs. And so that's kind of what we wanted to get into today is how there's a lot of privilege built into sustainability and there is a lot of um, classism, I think, built into sustainability. And we'll touch on this a little bit later, but a lot of people miss that part of the conversation entirely because they're so focused on the environmental issues and saving the polar bears. It's like, that's great. We definitely want to preserve the planet, but let's also take care of our own, you know? 100%. 100%. And, um, Maybe a, little too, maybe a little bit too soon, but I just want to emphasize that that emphasis on people is what's needed in order to make the, the sustainability movement more um, inclusive. Um, as long as it remains inclusive, because we keep talking about polar bears and rainforests and, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not resonating with a lot of people who are facing a lot more immediate problems in their life. So in order to sustain, in order, if we're going to sustain the environment, we've got to sustain people. And we will delve. <laughs> we will. We will we delve. Will. <laughs> so let's start off by talking about some of the social justice stuff. Um, unless you've been living under a rock, I'm sure you know about what's happening with the Black Lives Movement, um, Black Lives Matter movement, and all of the things that have kind of crept out of the woodwork about our tumultuous history with race in this country. And um, I'm very grateful to have Sahara here to talk about this and give us her perspective, um, which I want to emphasize that this is not something that we can ask of every person of color, every black person, but Sahara has very graciously put herself at the forefront to discuss this and continue pushing the front line forward for all of us. So Sahara, what would you like to start with and from our great outline? Yeah, um, so we've definitely seen uh, the Black Lives Matter movement be re-energized uh, these past couple months with the killings of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And um, if you don't mind me breaking the uh, YouTube fourth wall for a second, at the moment of us recording this, just a few hours ago, the three um, men who were are being charged with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery uh, all pleaded not guilty to all of their charges. So 
we will see how that pans out. But as because of these recent instances, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement be re-energized and we've seen protests across the country. And so we've seen this re-energized conversation about police brutality, specifically racism um, and how it's uh, used as a, a tool of racism against black people. And um, there, I see that a lot of conversation has been opened up, not just around that, but just around everything that uh, is kind of a push uh, in for racism. Uh, like kind of uses a tool against uh, people of color. So I'm, while I'm seeing a lot of conversation about police brutality and making sure that uh, specifically defund the police is what we're talking about a lot right now. Um, we're also seeing conversations, people talking about the LGBTQ community and aggressions that they face. We're seeing um, women speaking up again, almost like a, um, a re-energizing of the Me Too movement as well. And um, while while these things while these things come together i mean you know why not just bring everything up in order for us to push the black lives matter movement one of one of the things that's kind of used as a weapon against people of color is environmental racism and um we have to we have to look into how these things are also working against the event like the advancement and the advancement and the happiness, the joy, the, the health of, of Black people. So one of the driving forces of Black of the Black Lives Matter movement is working towards a world where Black lives are no longer systemically targeted for demise. One of the ways that Black lives are targeted for demise is through environmental racism. So we can't have a complete conversation about undoing racism if we're not also talking about how racism is uh, used as, a, uh, environmental racism is used as a weapon. So it's, completely um, imperative for us to have this conversation and have it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's one of the main reasons why I thought this conversation was so important. One of the things that we've talked about in our prep calls is there's a lot of intersectionality happening here between all of the different movements um, with the environmental movement, the anti-racism movement, and the women's movement, the queer you know, movement, all of it. And a lot of times I think people get siloed and they don't realize how all of these things are very much interconnected. And right. we're going to dive into some specific examples of climate injustice later, um, but that's just kind of framing the conversation as to why from people who are in a sustainability program, I think we feel it more so than some other people that we see this intersectionality issue and we feel like it's not being talked about enough um, in our circles. 100%. 100%. And um, inter I mean, if, if we are having any conversation that doesn't include um, intersectionality, when we're talking about, uh, you know, the advancement of marginalized people, then we might as well not be having the conversation. Um, yeah. It's not even baby steps at this point. It's just a step backwards if you're not including everyone in the conversation. So it's, it's needed. Yeah. Um, on the note of intersectionality, I know you wanted to touch on the role of Black women in the movement, so I'll let you kind of add some thoughts there. Yeah, um, Black women have absolutely been pivotal in the movement against environmental racism and the quest for environmental justice um, here in the States since the 90s. Um, I have, uh, there's an example, uh, in 1996, there was a woman named Margaret Williams. She was reti a retired school teacher living in Pensacola, Florida, and she was the, one of the people to spearhead the um, CATE, the Citizens Against Toxic Exposure in Pensacola. And what their, their, 
mission was to fight um, this decommissioned plant owned by the Escambia Treating Company. Uh, it was a wood treating plant and it was left behind in this community. And it was um, basically releasing toxins <clears throat> into their soil and into their water and poisoning people in that community. And I believe by 2001, the EPA had uh, commissioned uh, $18 million to move almost 400 black families out to relate, relocate them out of that neighborhood um, to place them where you know there is not poisoning. Yeah. Um, and that's one of literally dozens of examples. Um, there's Wangari Maathai um, from two, in 2004, she won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, uh, an environmental justice advocate from Kenya, um, actually a professor in our program, um, Hunter Lovins, uh, has talked about her very close relationship uh, with her. Um, she's another pivotal person uh, that we've had in this movement. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers when uh, when the Flint the Flint water crisis was really at its peak in the media. There was an eight-year-old girl called uh, we called her Little Miss Flint. Her name was Mary Copany, an eight-year-old, and uh, she was one of a uh, hundred thousand people who kind of uh, led who was pivotal in gaining attention to this, uh, the Flint water crisis. Um, and after, after Obama um, allotted $170 million toward the, uh, investigating the Flint water issue, um, he, also moved, he also moved on to um, uh, solve other um, kind of other things that were precursors to the Flint water crisis. And to this day, that crisis is still being fought literally a few yeah. days ago. Mind you, are in 2020. This happened in 2016, by the way, to be clear. Um, uh, but yes, as of a few days ago, um, a prosecutor, prosecutor um, Kim Worthy from Wayne County uh, was just appointed to the trial and she will be leading the case um, against the uh, Flint officials who pretty much allowed this crisis to happen. Um, there are multiple <laughs> examples of Black women who have been pivotal, pivotal in this movement. And it goes back again to my, uh, my point about intersectionality when we're talking about um, including men, we're talking about including men and women. And then it goes beyond men and women, right? It's non-binary people. It's everyone within the LGBTQIA spectrum, um, disabled folk, people of different religious backgrounds, disabled mentally and physically, we have to include everyone. And so it, and in having these conversations about including everyone, it's great to reflect on work that has been done by like non-men to see that like there's other people who are pivotal in doing this work and we need to continue to empower these people to continue to do this work and also continue to create societies that grow women and non, you know, non-gender conforming yeah. people and everyone to feel like they have the, the resources to do so. Because who knows, you know, who knows the ideas and the innovation that are being squandered because someone did not make it to college or someone was killed by a police officer in the street. Who knows what we're missing out on? So we have no choice but to include everyone. So it's pivotal to talk about the, um, how Black women have been absolutely instrumental here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to touch on the point that you made about including people in the conversation, I think that's one of the pinnacles of climate justice is that you can't solve climate issues without talking to the people who are most affected by it because they are going to be the ones who will tell you whether or not a solution is going to work for them. Um, it's kind of like a white savior complex and like colonialism and going back to that you can't go somewhere and impose systems onto other people without understanding what their needs are and what their struggles are and what their financial boundaries are what their 
day-to-day barriers are and stuff like that. And so I think that's a really important piece of the climate justice conversation is including people in the conversation and really having those advocates for people um, from their local communities is so important. Um, These people have their air to the ground where their air needs to be to the ground. And you can't, you can't come from a distance and make judgments or, you know, uh, suggest policies or, you know, or any of these things if you don't have the context. So you have to ask the people who have the context, the people with the education, the people who have been there. Um, So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And they also have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, They have the most at risk, like they have the most to gain or lose from the situation. So they're invested, you know, emotionally and mentally, they're invested in finding the right solution for their community. So why wouldn't you want them to be a part of the conversation? Of course, of course. So let's shift over to talking more about climate justice, if that's okay with you. Um, And we've touched on a lot of this. There was one quote that I pulled from a meteorologist at Penn State who actually teaches a class dedicated to climate justice that I thought was really poignant. Um, He says, racism is inexorably linked to climate change because it dictates who benefits from activities that produce planet warming gases and who suffers most from the consequences. Um, And I think that really just goes back to talking about how we as a people have a tendency, especially in a capitalist society, to ransack the planet's assets. Um, And this has been going on since colonialism and uh, at the expense of indigenous people and racial minorities. And I think it's important to remember that that hasn't really changed. You've still got things like redlining happening. You've still got people, like the most at-risk populations are living um, in the most at-risk locations. They're like on the waterfronts in Brooklyn and stuff like that. And so you can't talk about climate change and not talk about who is at risk and what that demographic looks like. Absolutely. And to be very clear, this is not a mistake. This is not by accident. This was redlining that was done forcefully with very racist um, uh, intentions, and it was meant to harm uh, people of color and to uphold white supremacy, uh, making sure that um, African-American families couldn't buy homes in um, certain places because they were clean and close to water and had lots of trees and open streets and fresh air, things that, you know, average people want from their neighborhood. Those, those areas were purposely restricted and cut off for Black people. There's also, you know, access to financing loans, you know, bank loans. Those are also things that were held from people of color. So absolutely, these were not, you know, none of this was a mistake. This was all put into place. And it's going to take so much work Um, from people of color and white people in order for us to solve this. Yeah. Uh, Another part of climate justice is that racial inequality means that the people most at risk have the fewest resources to cope. So a couple examples that I pulled, one was Hurricane Katrina, where more than 30% of Black New Orleans residents didn't own cars when the hurricane hit, so they they could not physically evacuate. And again, they were the ones in the most at-risk locations. Um, So that is just a, a, such a clear example of how these two things are linked that it's, uh, it's crazy to me that people aren't talking about this all the time. I, I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Um, this, it's just crazy how the, the, the combination how of um, racist policies, uh, the combination of racist policies and just 
the, the scarce, the scarcity of capitalism has like combined to just kind of work against um, people of color so much here. And also um, when we talk about capitalism, there's scarcity. And then there's also kind of like how you mentioned the idea of just kind of extracting as much as you can from as little as possible, you know, or, or rather, I'm sorry, extracting as much as you can and paying as little as you no, can for it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that literally started with slavery. Like it's like, the whole country is built on that exact concept on the back, on the, the backs of stolen African people. So, I mean, this, that same concept has been continued um, throughout our society. We actually see it right now as we kind of went through this, going through this um, coronavirus pandemic, and we are seeing who are the essential workers, who are the people that we are still expecting to run our city, who are the people who are still on the front lines of catching and dying from this virus, who has the least amount of resources to cure themselves and to protect themselves, and they still have to be out driving buses, you know, packing groceries, delivering, you know, Amazon packages. So it is a critical conversation to be had about, you know, we are enact, you know, we are enacting this, this violence against you and we are also preventing you from protecting yourself against right. it it's it's double-edged it's absolutely double-edged and even though we are business students i think that a lot of people in our program myself included i won't speak for you we have like this um a knee-jerk reaction to the capitalist system in a lot of ways where we notice that the whole system is about cutting costs and underpaid labor and that goes all the way back to slavery and all of these things that we're talking about and so it's hard to rectify a system that is built on the proponent of maximized profits and i think that is at the core of sustainability is that we can't just think about a singular bottom line it has to be an integrated bottom line where we think about the impact on the planet the impact on our people and also make sure we're making a profit but not making it a profit at the expense of everything else. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because profit is not equivalent to everything else. You know, it's not equivalent to human health and, you know, quality air and justice. It, you know, profit does not uh, equate to all those things. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and you already touched on this, but I'll go ahead and mention it anyways. Um, another tenant of the climate justice movement is how the privileged keep their power. So how racism imposes an economic burden on people of color, which then inhibits their ability to take action for social change. So the people who are on the front lines and are just trying to get their bills paid, they don't have time to go and fight for the justice. They don't have time to march every day because they're trying to put food on their table. And so the cycle continues and it's a self-perpetuating cycle until everyone gets involved, whether it's as an activist or as a silent ally and demands change, that cycle is never going to break. A hundred percent. And I'd even like to add on to that, um, kind of what you, when you mentioned the beginning, um, kind of thing, like I, I made the choice, you know, to be here and have this conversation. Um, when it comes to the people who have less um, financial wiggle room and, you know, don't have necessarily the time to take off work to, to protest, to advocate these types of things. Um, we cannot place the burden on them to fix these problems. The burden is on the people who do have the flexibility, who have the time, the resources to address these problems. So yes, this may be your problem, but it's my responsibility to fix it because yeah. it's kind of, you know, the way I'm living, that's why you live that way. So because I have these extra uh, these privileges, I have to use that to kind of level out this playing field a little more, you know, if you will. Um, it's, so it's accountability and ownership. Yes. And there, in my mind, there is no such thing as your problem. It is our problem. It's something yep. that 
maybe I haven't done it directly, but you know, as a human being, we have created this problem. And so now it is our collective responsibility to rectify yep. that. Yep. Yep. You're hundred percent right. And it's, um, it's almost like that, that key, that key sense of community right there, that collective sense of community is, um, something that get that gets uh, lost a lot when we are being exclusive with these types of conversations. Yeah. Um, so that's also, also really needed. Yeah. Um, so we're clearly very riled up about this and there's a, lot to, there's a lot to get riled up about okay. <laughs> before we kind of switch gears entirely and talk about riling down. I don't know if that's a phrase, but I'm going to go with it. We'll Just wanted to it. make sure there was nothing else you wanted to add to that conversation. Sahara. Of course. Yeah. I just wanted to add another quick perspective um, to the, the quest for environmental justice. Um, coming from uh, my background in industrial hygiene, um, like I said, I was working with doing lead paint inspections in New York City buildings. So that is another type of um, environmental racism that doesn't necessarily have to do with climate change. It's more of a um, industrial hygiene, um, has hazardous materials um, type of issue. Um, however, it's still people of color, children of color specifically, who are at the highest risk for these um, more like build infrastructural environmental hazards. When we talk about mold, asbestos, and lead, that those are still problems that are being most experienced by lower income people and people of color. So even when we have those conversations, when we're talking about abatement and cleanup in those areas, those neighborhoods, you know, they need the inspections, they need the, the blood testing for their children. Like it's important for those, for those communities. And it's important for them to have the access to have clean and safe living spaces as well. Yeah, and comfortable. I mean, and one of the examples that I put on here is that, you know, if you wanna get super local. So in New York City, every summer is getting increasingly hot. And to find an apartment with, first of all, central air conditioning, you could forget about it. It's not, okay. gonna, it's not a thing. It's not going to happen. Even, yeah. <laughs> and then to be able to afford a window air conditioner and what that does to your electricity bill and all of that, like, it's not accessible for everyone. So even if you can afford living in New York, what kind of, what quality of life do you have? And right. the increasing temperatures, that's not because of what's happening in your house. It's what's happening collectively. It's what's happening with corporate America, with manufacturing, with driving, with like all the other emissions factors in the world. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. And um, even just like the locality of um, being forced to live in a big city because that's cheaper and big cities are where urban heat islands formed for those an urban heat island is basically kind of uh, a collection of space that is up to 10 degrees hotter than surrounding more suburban areas because of things like dark pavement that is like really um, common in cities tall buildings and these things just kind of you know collect heat um so yes absolutely that is a problem that is experienced in cities uh cities that have still huge um segregation issues so there are huge communities of color who are living in huge cities like here in new york city and you and living in you know um dilapidated public housing where they are not comfortable because there are um uh hazardous materials like lead and asbestos and mold and lack of air conditioning and rats and roaches you know hyg like hygiene that's quality of life that's also a thing that can be held from people and used against people so it, it's you know again like we said none of these things are a mistake um and we have to start looking at like that and that's when we will begin to really undo the gigantic <laughs> monster of the issue that is the climate you know justice movement yeah 
Yeah. Um, so if you're not riled up by now, you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is just like really depressed and really sad. Um, and we experience that a lot because we work in sustainability. And, you know, when you talk about climate change and social justice issues every day, it's hard not to get sad from time to time. Hard not to. Which is why a really important part of what we wanted to talk about today, and that has been a theme entirely in this talk show of mine, is about mental health and self-care and how in these trying times in this world, um, you really need to take care of yourself and why especially it's important for the social justice movement. So anything that you want to kick us off with, Sahara? Absolutely. Um, especially, you know, especially now, you know, we, we, I think we all know about ourselves that we can only, you know, keep running at a certain pace for a certain amount of time, right? Um, it is absolutely essential. Emphasis on the word essential for each of us to sustain ourselves individually in order to hold out for the long-term commitment that these fights are. Yeah. It's a marathon and we have to pace ourselves accordingly so that we can fight this fight as for as long as we need to. That's what I, at least that's what I'm trying to do here. But in order to do that, we have to take breaks and you have to turn down sometimes. Um, and I know that I need to do that. And we all have our own methods of doing that. And I, Nicole, we were having a conversation. I said how I removed myself from social media from long, from long periods of yeah. time, actually, um, in order to have more control over um, the pace at which I, you know, consume media. And I say that because you know, you know, things like Instagram and Twitter, Twitter, it's so easy to mindlessly scroll. You know, next thing you know, thirty minutes, an hour have passed, and you you've taken in, you know, all this information. And now when we see people talking a lot about Black Lives Matter movement, people posting violent posts about things happening to people in the street, protesters, innocent people, you know, by police, it's so important to take a moment and say, you know what, um, this is driving me up the wall. Yeah. This is me sad. This is depressing me. Um, and I need to sit back and take a Hulu break you know, um, and it's okay to do that. It's actually essential to do that. So um, that is, you know, like you said, Nicole, it's something that we, it, it's essential every day, but it's even more essential here. So it's, I don't want anyone to feel guilty about saying, I need to step back from this. Maybe I'm not going to that protest this weekend. I'm removing myself from, you know, Instagram this Saturday, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, drink your coffee and hop back in when you're ready. We'll be here waiting. And also understand that while you're taking your sit-down break, there are millions of other people still fighting. Like, that's the beauty of it all, right? There are 8 million people in New York City alone. We don't have, we don't have to all fight the same fight. We don't have to fight it at the same pace. It's actually better that we're doing it at, like, these staggered times. So it's like, it's always covered. It's like like working at a grocery store. So there's always someone on the yeah. on the cashier while someone's in the back taking their break. It's this tap it's the in, tap concept. out, tap tap in, tap out. You know, and you know, you know me personally. I'll I'll hold myself accountable to this, uh, to allowing people to hop out and hop back in. Um, you know, for those mental health breaks. And um, it's important to also you know know that silence from somebody isn't necessarily. Um, than them not caring, especially if it's a person of color, to please be aware of that. A lot of the times, it literally is self-maintenance. So, um, you know, absolutely, uh, what we were talking about, like sac uh, sacred Saturday, self-care yeah. Sunday, just taking time to remove yourself and engage in something that you love to do. I just picked up biking. And Ooh. 
what I was doing before that, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it is just, it is just like through Instagram probably. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's become so enjoyable for me to just kind of, you know, ride, you know, winds in my fro, you're just, just going down, you know, going down a road and it feels great. It's great exercise. And giving myself a few hours to do that a day is energizing and energizing so that I can hop back, you know, yeah. into, into the marathon. So absolutely find something for yourself. That's a good, you know, a step back, you know, a good wind down so that you can sustain yourself. Yeah. And I will add to that. Um, I want everyone to remember that you can be an ally and an activist and still enjoy your life that fighting for the cause doesn't mean that you need to be miserable all the time and you need to be putting yourself in the situation where you're on information overload and you feel like you have to be down. Um, a big part of self-sustainability is recognizing that you can be grateful for the things in your life and acknowledge your privilege and still be an important member of the cause. Um, we don't want everyone to burn out at the same time. That's one of the things that Sahara and I talked about. It's like, for me, the worst nightmare is that everyone falls into a depression at the same time and suddenly the whole movement fizzles out. So actually it's important for you to remember what you're fighting for. Yep. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And know, you know, why you're energized by it. It's your compassion for your, for your community and the people around you and wanting to see everyone live the, you know, the same quality of life that you do because of the privileges that you have. And that's essentially what it comes down to. Wonderful. Um, so I'll be including details and links below for a bunch of extra resources that we've kind of collected, ways to get in touch with Sahara if you want to pester her um, within That's reason. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, or if you just want to chat with her about literally anything. She's such a bundle of joy and an absolute delight and is one of my favorite people. Uh, but I'll let you give any last closing thoughts that you have, Sahara, before we sign off. Yeah. Um, you know, we're in a super pivotal time right or rather let me rephrase that we are in a potentially pivotal time right now and that potential will only turn kinetic um, if we depending on how we conduct ourselves throughout our movement um, and I say our movement because this is our movement and we you know we're talking about self-sustainability taking care of yourself so there's that and then there's also the important aspect of in of inclusion and that's something to think about moving forward to hold to hold on to yourself. I feel like as I, when I move forward in my conversations about these things, when I keep these things in the back of my mind, it's like a good it's a good driver, you know. Um, and you know, in the in the meantime, you, we've you know we all have kind of taken our self assigned responsibility, and you hold yourself accountable to it. And as long as you remain open to conversation about your role and um, how you affect other people and how other people affect you. It's not easy, but like, we'll get there and we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. We will get there. We'll get there. I think one of the best analogies that you had is it's a group project. It's a group project. Yeah. It's a group project. Everyone has an assignment. Do your job. Yep. Do Everyone your job and we'll get there. And we'll get there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, Sahara, for being on the show. And to everyone else, tune in next week. Bye. Bye, guys.